Good morning and welcome to our service. I greet you in Jesus' name this morning. It's not too often that I pay close, maybe this is a confession, but it's not real often I pay real close attention to the prayer that's being prayed before I get up here. But I did this morning because I have a little trepidation about my uh, what I'm going to share with you this morning. And there was a part of me that, uh, because of that trepidation, you get this thing, well, should I, shouldn't I? Was this a bad choice? Um, I, I feel the, the possibility of being misunderstood this morning is very real. So I want to just clarify that up front. I, I don't want to be misunderstood, and this is biblical, I believe, and we need to look at it. However, there is that possibility. And so I really appreciated Dennis's emphasis in his prayer that sometimes we have wrong ideas. Sometimes our thinking needs clarified. I hope that is what happens this morning. Okay, that would be my prayer. That our thinking is clarified and nobody is, I'm not misunderstood, and the, 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 uh, then God is glorified. Turn with me to John 9. We're going we're gonna to knock this chapter out this morning. Um, I've, I've been working on this chapter for a while, and it's been a while since we were here just because of other services and so on that we've had. But I saved our, our favorite characters for the last, the Pharisees. And these people are much talked about, highly uh, disliked by uh, us as Christians, modern Christians. And, um, you know, we kind of want to say that we for sure don't fit that camp at all. I titled my, my talk here this morning, You Are Blind and Your Sins Remain. I want you to stop and think about that for a little bit. That's, that's right out of um, verse 41 of John 9. It says, um, But now you say, We see, therefore your sins remain. That's Jesus' words to the Pharisees. And what he was saying is, You say you're not blind, but because you say that, your sins remain. And as we go through this message this morning, you'll realize how much that must have stung those people. Uh, to say that your sins remain means that I thought what I was doing all along was getting rid of my sin. And they're still here. How stinging could that be to these people that my sins are still here. They still remain. And all along I thought they were gone because of what I was doing. That verbiage is very sobering. I'm going to give you a story that I ran across in preparation for this. Um, there was a man, an American person, that was driving around with a friend in, in Central America that was a native. And this, uh, this native was, of course, he spoke the, the Spanish tongue. And so, but he was learning English. And so in an attempt to... Uh, converse with his American friend. He was trying his English out on, on the American friend. And he went past a home that was for the blind. And he was, ah, click, 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 click. What's the word for blind? I can't remember. I can't remember. He said, he said that's, for, that's the home for people that don't look, he goes. That fits so well right here. The Pharisees weren't blind because they couldn't see. The Pharisees were blind because they did not look. They refused to look. And Jesus tried to help these people look. And they didn't like what they saw when they looked. I'm going to read verses 39 to 41 of chapter 9. 
And Jesus said, For judgment I am come into this world, that they which see might not see, and they which see might be made blind. And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said unto him, Are we blind also? Jesus said unto them, If ye were blind, you should have no sin. But now ye say, We see. Therefore, your sin remains. Let's get a little context here. We've, we've read this chapter before, but let's just think a little bit what these Pharisees' response were to this healing of this blind man um, here in chapter 9. In verses 15 and 16, these Pharisees immediately got this man's testimony, if you remember. And instead of amazement and worship and just loving what they see, here was a blind man that can now see. They immediately say, something's wrong. Jesus isn't from God. He can't be because he heals on the Sabbath. That immediately makes him a sinner. Done. Heals on the Sabbath. Never, never thought to think about that a miracle had just been performed. Nope, he's a sinner. Healed on the Sabbath day. They wouldn't even believe the blind man until, in verse 18, they call in his parents. A man that at one time could not see. How easy is that? But no, I'm not even going to believe you can see till I call in your parents to get their testimony. Verse 24 to 27. They have a second interrogation with this man. And they put great emphasis on Jesus is a sinner. And they start poking fun at the blind man. Because he's not a true believer. In verse 28, their words are so... Um, maybe I have the wrong verse here. Um, some point, some point here they say, give God the glory... Um, we know this man is a sinner. And I obviously have the wrong verse here. I'm not seeing it. 24. They said, give God praise. We know. We know this man is a sinner. How did they know Jesus was a sinner? Here's what they were saying. Jesus isn't like us. We're on top of our game. He's not like us. That makes him a sinner. He's a sinner. We know He's a sinner. Verses 30 to 34. The reaction of this blind man, and I alluded to it before, is just nothing short of good. He's such a, a simple old blind man. I mean, what a stunned man. You think the sun was bright to that poor man's eyes? I mean, you go from just seeing black to all wants all these things. And... Um, and, you know, I just can't imagine this man's emotional, I don't know, I can't imagine how this man must have felt, but I'm sure it was nothing short of good. And his logic was so great. He says, why, um, herein is a marvelous thing. He says that you don't know where this man comes from, and yet I can see. He says, now we know that God heareth not sinners, you're calling him a sinner, but we know. He said, I know, or we know. And he just got done saying, we know Jesus is a sinner. He said, well, I know that Jesus doesn't hear sinners. That I know. But if any man worships God and does he, his will, well, God hears him. This is simple stuff. This is elementary. How easy is this? 
And then he goes, on, in verse 32, he says, Well, since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? You tell me. Did you ever hear this before? This is great stuff. If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. And boy, their blood was boiling. They had all they could take. And they said, Thou wast, for, thou wast altogether born in sins, and dost thou teach us? And they kicked him out of the temple. They said, What do you mean? You're going to teach us? We know everything. You don't know anything. You're a sinner. You hang out with sinners. A sinner just got done healing you. Get him out of here. Chuck him out of the temple. Of course, uh, Jesus finds this man at this time. And the ensuing dialogue between Jesus and this man was, was just nothing short of wonderful. He, he goes through it. He says, Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of God? He says, I would love to. I would love to believe in the Son of God. Show me where he is. He said, right here. And the man immediately falls down and he worships. And then Jesus has his commentary that we already read. And he goes um, in verse 39, he says, you know, I'm coming to this world basically to make two camps. There's going to be two camps because of my coming. I don't condemn, but people condemn themselves. Jesus forces people. When I say forced, don't misunderstand me. Jesus forces people to make a choice. You must choose. And that's exactly what happened here. You found yourself in one camp or the other. And that's where people were on that very morning. I had to think of the, um, of the prophecy that Simeon made in Luke 2. Whenever Jesus was brought to the temple, he says, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through his own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. These people could not recognize their blindness. They couldn't see it. They thought they saw. So because they saw, thought they saw, they didn't go to an eye doctor. Didn't do it. And they were blind. They would never receive help for their eyesight because they thought they saw. Those who came to Jesus and knew they were blind, knew they had eye problems, they could see. There was hope for those people. There was hope for this blind man. There was hope for a lot of other people. But there wasn't a whole lot of hope for the Pharisees. So the question just begs to be asked, why? What made these Pharisees this way? Whatever happened way back when that we end up with this sect in the New Testament called the Pharisees, never heard about them in the Old Testament, and all of a sudden Matthew opens up in the New Testament 400 years later and we have these Pharisees. How did this come to be? Well, um, I don't know if I have time for this or not, but I thought just so you'd have something to follow, I would uh, maybe throw a few, few of these up here and probably now that I want to do it, I won't get it figured out or it won't work. Can you see that, Ari? So uh, if, if you remember, we're going to do a little history lesson here. If you remember Alexander the Great, the man that, uh, the Greek man that um, conquered the world practically, when he died, his kingdom was divided into three. Uh, he had a general named Ptolemy. He had one named Seleucius and one named Antagonus or something like that. We're just going to talk about the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. 
Uh, these people divided his kingdom. The, there was three kingdoms now. Judah, the, the people of Israel, uh, at one, in the beginning they belonged to the Seleucids, or I'm sorry, the Ptolemies. Eventually the Seleucids take that over, and then the uh, Seleucids uh, now uh, rule the, the territory we know as, as uh, Israel. I should back up. When Alexander the Great, part of his program was Hellenization, and you probably heard of that, where we take Greek culture and we impose it on the people we conquer so that you're not a whole lot different than us. In other words, we're going we're gonna to make you like us. So they imposed Hellenization, it was called. Now, Alexander, um, he was pretty passive about that. He left them choose somewhat. The Ptolemies left Israel have a lot of autonomy as well. The Seleucids, not so much. They wanted to, to change these people. And so we have the, the first king, a ruler, Antiochus III, who allowed autonomy. Antiochus IV comes along, who uh, is his son, and he really instigates uh, what I would call forced Hellenization. Uh, he, he was the guy, if you remember your history, the, uh, the infamous, infamous story of where there was uh, an, a, a statue of Zeus uh, erected in the temple and a sacrifice of a pig made on an altar there. And this man allowed non-Jews into the temple. Okay, just, just horrible stuff as far as any Jew was concerned. Well, this got the better of a, of a man named Matthias and his five sons. Who Matthias was an elderly priest, and he had five sons. And so they began a guerrilla warfare against these Greeks. They had all they could take. And that became known what we know of as the Maccabean Revolt. Now, I'm going to just throw up another one here real quick. This, uh, this Maccabean Revolt uh, ended up being... Uh, what scholars now or historians call the Hasmonean dynasty. So we have the Maccabees, and interestingly, interesting to me, that word means a hammer. And boy, those people used a hammer-like method to get their way, and they did. Against all odds, they kicked them Greeks out of there, and they gained some autonomy again, or they became self-governing. So we have Matthias, the father, the elderly priest, he, uh, he passes off the scene. His son Judah comes along. And Judah makes it to almost the end of the Maccabean War. And he falls off the scene as well. He's killed in battle, I think. Then at that time, there was two Maccabean brothers left, Simon and Jonathan. Simon becomes the ruler. Jonathan becomes the high priest. Jonathan is killed by the Greeks. And so Simon usurps his, his part of it. He becomes ruler and high priest. Now, that's unprecedented. That had never happened before. We have a, the same man that is the ruler and the high priest, okay? Um, eventually, through a series of events, Simon is assassinated by his brother-in-law, who had conspired with the Greeks, actually. And uh, so John Harkanus, I think I'm saying his name right, he is the man, he's Simon's son, and he rushes to Jerusalem, and he takes his father's role, so he's now ruler and high priest as well. It's this last man that actually was somewhat the instigator of why the Pharisees came to be. So this John, he was, um, he had some good parts to him. He, he really strengthened the Torah, law in the, in the land. And he kept the Greeks and Romans at bay. His military might was good. But he had one 
one small issue. He, uh, he was okay with Hellenization. He was okay with, um, with that cultural influence that the Greeks had left on, on the children of Israel, and he was, he was good with that. And he cozied up with a group of people we know as the Sadducees. We've heard of these people, but I was unsure how they had their uh, origin as well. But it turns out that there was a high priest back in the day that made a statement that went like this. He says, Do not be like servants who serve God on the condition of receiving reward. Rather be like servants who serve God without expecting reward. Now, isn't that a great statement? I mean, it sounds logical. Well, he had some disciples years later misinterpret this. They misinterpret this, this high priest, um, his, his uh, sentence here that I just read to you, that um, really there is no such thing as reward or punishment a- after this life. We don't serve God for reward or punishment. There is no world to come. If you do God's will, that's fine. If, if you do not, nothing bad will happen to you. God does not reward or punish. And that is precisely what we have whenever we have um, um, the Sadducees arguing with Jesus, is that comes out. They didn't believe in an afterlife. Well, as time moves along, um, this became a sect, the Sadducees. And they had three planks to their, to their party platform. They didn't believe in a life hereafter. They did not believe in something that became known as oral tradition. And I'll touch on that just a little bit later. But they believed that it was the Torah, and that's it. The first five books of the law of the Old Testament, or the books of the law, that was it. That's all God expected out of you. Oral tradition was to them just fooey. They also believed in a priestly class as being the ruling class. And if you remember, they loved their position. And they were, in, they were, they were basically the priestly uh, part of the children of Israel during Jesus' time. They believed in aristocracy, which is basically the elite, wealthy, ruling class as being, you know, here and everybody else is down here. So through a series of events, this John Hycarnus aligns himself more and more with the Sadducees and Hellenization and all these things. And because of this worldview that they have, um, people that are, you know, wanting to do the right thing, they, they want to embrace what God called, had called them to. They wanted to do the right thing. They can more and more see that this whole uh, priest-ruler thing, it had a real liberal bent. I mean, they were going places that wasn't right. So out of this comes the Pharisees. They were people that pulled aside and said, this is going places we don't want to go. We, we want to do the right thing. So they pulled away. And Pharisee basically means separatist. They, they separated themselves from this ungodliness around them. So, so far, if that's all you know about Pharisees, you good with them? Absolutely. Absolutely. No qualms whatsoever. Interestingly enough, to me anyway, they had a very high approval rating among the common people. 75 to 80% approval rating. Now, I mean, any president in his right mind would love an approval rating like that. That's great. Especially among women, believe it or not. They were highly revered. Uh, These people were the sages of the law. Um, Sadducees, on the other hand, were not well liked. Um, They were looked at as liberal, uh, very stuffy. They were the elite. They were the rich. They were the rulers. 
and not very well liked. But the Pharisees, people liked those people. They, they liked the, the common people liked Pharisees. Interesting to me, the Sanhedrin was predominantly um, Sadducean in its, compo- in its composite, but the Pharisees hold a lot of sway with the Sanhedrin because the Sadducees knew that the common people had the respect, or the Pharisees had the respect for the common people, and so they would listen up whenever the Pharisees spoke to the Sanhedrin. And you'll remember different times in the New Testament where a Pharisee would stand up, address the Sanhedrin, and a Sanhedrin would say, you're right, we're listening to you. And so there was a lot of, lot of sway there. Okay, so moving on. Um, so what, what went wrong here? Uh, had a good start. What happened? Well, um, as I mentioned, I've been throwing around this, this word, the Torah. First five books of the Bible, that's what the Jews had uh, as their law in, in, in these times. Does anybody know how many specific commands are in the Torah? Want to guess? Mark actually mentioned, you know, all these different commands and things, you know. Any idea? Real quick. All right, nobody knows. 613 to be exact. A lot. It's no wonder that that poor um, rabbi or whoever it was, I can't remember, but that doctor that came to Jesus said, which one's the greatest? I mean, out of 613, I need help. Can you tell me which one's the greatest? It's no wonder, actually. Now we have another thing, which is really what got the Pharisees in trouble. We have this thing called oral tradition. So what was oral tradition? Well, there's a little bit of, um, I read so much on this that, uh, and a little bit of opposing opinions and differing opinions, I guess you'd say. But as much as I could tell, oral tradition was believed to have been instructions that Moses received from God about how to apply the Torah. Okay, and through the centuries, this was passed down orally. Um, you know, you would tell your sons, and your sons would tell their sons, and teachers would tell their students, and so on. This was passed on, but it was a very fluid thing. Uh, as it got passed along through the generations, things got added to it, and things actually got subtracted at times. But it was it was fluid. It was. You know, can you imagine if it's oral, nothing's on paper, it could become somewhat uh, disoriented as time would move along. So let's just take an example here of uh, what the Torah says about Sabbath day observation. I did not research this thoroughly. I'm taking another man's word for this as I was studying it. But according to this, this book I was reading, that there is actually four injunctions against Sabbath day um, activities in the Torah. So there was an injunction against lighting a fire, about going away from one's dwelling, about cutting down a tree, and about plowing and harvesting. That was it. Okay, so now what oral tradition came in there and said, okay, so what does it mean to go away from one's dwelling? You're not supposed to go away from one's dwelling. How far can you go before you run into a problem? So that's when they would codify it. And they'd say, well, you know, we hear about the Sabbath day journey. They had said, okay, from here to here, that's fine. That's what. That's how we're going to codify that. Uh, how about cutting down a tree? So if I walk outside my house and there's a sapling there, and it's it's been there, and I really don't like that it's there, and it, but it's the Sabbath day, and, and I have a, a minute to just pull, just just to reach down and pull that thing out. Did I cut down a tree? If I did that, 
Well, we need some help here. What, what constitutes cutting down a tree? What constitutes plowing and harvesting? If I walk through a cornfield and I'm hungry and I pick a few barley grains that I harvest, what is it? See, this is what the oral tradition did. It said, okay, this is harvesting, this is not. This is cutting down a tree, this is not. It codified stuff. All right? Now, this just seemed to get piled on in the interim between Malachi and Matthew. It seemed like the Pharisees and others as well, but that particular group, took, went to great lengths to codify and, and build what became known to scholars today as the fence around the Torah. We're going to make good and sure that whatever your activities are, you're not going to overstep the Torah if you don't overstep the oral tradition. Okay? Have I lost everybody yet? All right, that's where we're at. Was this all bad? The answer to that is no. That was not all bad. Take, for example, when the, when the Torah says, an eye for an eye. You poke out my eye, that means I poke out your eye. Oral tradition actually said no. It means that you need to take revenge in, uh, in the value of an eye. Okay, so maybe somebody poked your eye out, but it would be okay to take maybe monetary um, uh, reimbursement for that. So that was actually seem reasonable. I mean, this is, this is the way that the oral tradition did things. But then it got crazy. So you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath day. It got as crazy as, well, how heavy can one's sandals be? When, when does this become work to actually lift up my foot because my sandals are so heavy? These are, this is how crazy this got. And we laugh at that. We laugh at that. But there's, a, there's, there's something we've got to think about as we, as we move along here. It's also interesting to me that oral tradition was never put down on paper to 200 A.D. The reason for that was that after the fall of Jerusalem and things were just going south bad for the Jews, some of the Pharisees and sages of the law got together and said, you know what, if we don't write this stuff down, it will be permanently lost. And so they did that. They, they, at 200 A.D., they permanently wrote that down. Today, what you know or what we know of as the Talmud, you've probably heard that word, is actually the oral tradition that's been written down on paper. So if you ever have the opportunity to read the Talmud, you're reading some of what the oral tradition was. It, it's also quite interesting to me that the Talmud is actually divided into two parts. There's one part known as the Mishnah, that's the actual oral tradition, and the other part is known as the Gemara, which is a commentary on the oral tradition. Okay, so we need to briefly make sure that we got this down. Still impressed with the Pharisees? Not sure yet, are we? We're, we're, sort of, we're sort of starting to wonder about it. Great beginning, but we're really starting to wonder. Let's turn to Matthew 23. I'm not going to take a lot of time here, but I, this is a great chapter to just show the absolute hypocrisy and the, the foolhardiness of what these people, why they turned into blind people, as Jesus calls them about. I'm not going to read the chapter because I don't have time. But I do want to just comment on some of these things that Jesus just calls these people on the carpet about. And because it's Jesus calling these folks on the carpet, 
we had best sit up and take notice. So, um, verse 2 and 3, I first of all, I just want to point out that Jesus says, listen, these, these people do sit in Moses' seat. So, pay attention to what they say. Do pay attention to it. And do as they say, but don't do it like they do it. Practice it in a different way. So then he goes on to tell how they're not practicing their oral tradition. What I believe this is saying is Jesus is not necessarily lambasting the oral tradition. He's just saying, if you're going to practice it, make sure you practice it with the Torah as well. I mean, what had, what had ended up happening is the people toted around the Talmud. That's, that was the Bible. It was the Talmud. That's what they were worried about performing, what that thing said. In verse 4, he says, These people bind heavy burdens that are grievous to be, be borne, but they won't lift a finger to help. What's he saying? The insistence on minute detail had gotten way out of hand. Way, way out of hand. Compare that to what Jesus said in Matthew 11. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. In contrast to the yoke that was upon these people, the heavy burdens. He said, my burden is easy and my burden... My yoke is easy and my burden is light compared to these heavy burdens. Verses 5 to 7. Absolutely loved honor and position. Compare that to Jesus' teaching in Matthew 20. If you want to be great, be a servant. God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. Do you want grace or do you want resistance this morning? Remember that there is such a thing as having the appearance of godliness and denying the power. Verses 8 to 12, absolutely loved their recognition. Loved it. Master, rabbi, they thrived on that. Jesus says in verse 8, he says, um, ye are all brethren. You're all brethren. Um, in, in Jesus' kingdom, in God's kingdom, titles are very insignificant. You're all brothers. Verse 13, the Pharisees just absolutely could not take it when someone could actually outdo them in genuine faith. That's a sobering verse in verse 13. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, nor suffer ye them that are entering to go in. That's sobering. That needs our attention. These people were shutting men out of the kingdom by teaching them that tradition trumped justice and mercy and faith. They were opposing Jesus and persecuting those that followed him. These blind men's parents are a perfect example of that back in our story. Um, perfect example. I, I really am going to give those blind people, those blind people, the blind man's parents the benefit of the doubt. I honestly believe that they wished the whole thing would have just went away. I mean, they wanted to go to church on Sunday. They wanted to go to the synagogue. They wanted to worship God. They, they wanted to do the right thing. And they were taught all their lives that if you listen to the Pharisees, the doctors of the law, that you're doing the right thing. And they just wanted to keep doing the right thing. They wanted to go to church next Sunday. They knew that if they opposed the Pharisees, 
they're going to get chucked out too. And they really didn't want to do that. These people were people that had an even keel uh, demeanor. They just didn't want to ruckus. I really, really believe that that's probably played into their decision not to side with Jesus and the blind man. Could be wrong. I don't want to misrepresent scripture. I don't think they were right. Okay, I want to make that clear. They weren't right, but I think that's probably part of what played into this. What about verse 14? I already told you that they had a high approval rating of women. What did they do with that? They devoured widows' houses. They became land managers and so on for widows and took advantage of them. And when they made a proselyte in verse 15, it says that they compassed land and sea and made him twofold more a child of hell. That is such strong language. It's one thing to be a child of hell. It's another thing to be twofold such. It means you got a double whammy against you. How did this happen? It happened because they would take a pagan and they'd take him out of that terrible religion, that ungodly religion, and they'd bring him over here. And they'd, and they'd, they'd take him and they'd, they'd teach him wrong. All right, They'd teach him stuff that didn't have anything to do with justice, mercy, and faith. And you made him twofold more a child of hell. Verse, four, verse 16 to 22, notice the verbiage in verse 16. Woe unto you, ye blind guides, ye blind guides. He says, then uh, he, goes, he goes on and he talks about how that they would make a difference between uh, their oaths. So if I take an oath against this, it's not binding. If I take an oath against that, it's binding. And we do this all in the name of honesty. Very, very deceptive in an attempt to appear honest. And Jesus says, you're a blind guide. Who wants to follow a blind guide, by the way? Verse 23 to 24, very, very um, uh, familiar verses to us, how these Pharisees would tithe mint and anise and cumin and omit the weightier matters of the law of justice, mercy, and faith. And again, I want to just point out the next phrase. These ye should have done there was nothing wrong with tithing on your mint and anise and cumin, but you should not have let the other undone. That's the emphasis that Jesus seems to be making here. And I'm, I understand that they would literally strain their water for fear they would eat a gnat. And a gnat was an unclean animal. So we've got to strain our cup. But Jesus said, just swallow camels. That's what you're doing. You're swallowing camels. Well, verse 25 to 33, Jesus um, sums this up here for these people. He says, um, verse 28, he said, you're, you're, you're full of iniquity. You know what that meant to those Pharisees? If you interpret that the way those Pharisees would understood it, it would go like this. You're full of lawlessness. Now, the, the irony of that is they were full of law. That's what they were about, is law, 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 this, rule there, rule there. They were about law. Jesus said, you are lawless. That's what you are. <clears throat> they believed themselves better than previous sinners. In verse 30, they said, you know, if we'd have lived in our Father's day, we wouldn't have persecuted the prophets. No, no, no. We certainly wouldn't have. We'd have, we'd have, we'd have treated those people quite kindly. Jesus says, you don't know yourselves. You don't understand that you're just like your fathers. 
And all the while, just the irony, the hypocrisy, just the hypocrisy dial is just pegged out here. I mean, they're persecuting Jesus. It's like, yeah, it's, it's hard to believe the blindness. You're no different than your fathers. Only the sin is different. Verse 32, fill ye up then the measure of your fathers. You're just like them. Verse 34 to 39, um, Jesus sums this up. He says, the chances for you are coming to an end. Your religious zeal, though so sincere, is going to be exposed. And your house of cards is going to come falling down around you. Your house will be left desolate. What do you think of the Pharisees so far? Now here comes the challenge. What are you and I supposed to learn from this? And here is where we run the risk of being greatly misunderstood. But we're going to try. There is a very real danger to any church that is committed to Christ, committed to holy living, You run down the wrong avenue here. I have yet to see any church last for any length of time that's serious about living a holy life get away with it without having some semblance of guidelines for the church. I'm sorry, that has been my observation. It's the way I would understand history. However, that puts us in an extremely precarious position. Traditions and cultural practices are valuable. Don't forget that. They're valuable. But the kingdom of God is not boxed inside tradition and cultural practice. And that's where the Pharisees ran aground. They said the kingdom of God is boxed inside our box. And it wasn't. Our tendency their tendency, our tendency today, is to overreact on one side or the other. For some reason, my friends, finding the proper balance in this arena tends to be extremely problematic. You almost always see the pendulum swing this way or this way. And to find that tension, that proper tension, is really hard. I'm going to read to you. I've been reading, a, or I read a book called Maintaining the Right Fellowship by John L. Ruth. It's basically a history of the Franconia Conference. And I'm sure to many of you it would be too big of a book and too detailed, and it almost was for me. But he makes, he makes a summary of the Franconia Conference in one of the last pages of his book that is just so, I think, dead on. If you disagree with me, you can tell me that after the service. But I think it's just dead on. And he's commenting on 18, in 1860 when John Oberholzer pulled out of the Franconia Conference because he just hated rules, couldn't take it anymore. And actually, to tell you the truth, my take on it is some of his complaints were legit. I will say I think some were legit. But anyway, so you get the picture. He swung the pendulum this way, Franconia Conference over here. He's over here. He starts what's known as the Eastern Conference, and they started going two different paths. Uh, from that point on. And I'm going to read you this. Our story shows that neither clinging to tradition nor demanding new forms of order has enabled the Mennonites of easternmost Pennsylvania to maintain one right fellowship. How could two groups of Mennonites unable, unable to keep any fellowship between them 
teach the world which one was right, dead on. Why had education, organization, and modernization been able to drive a wedge right down through the middle of the church? The opportunity for damage had been provided by the emergence of two extreme mentalities, neither of which served the right fellowship well. The first mentality heard mainly voices from the past on matters of ordering the church. It heard these voices with clarity and power unimaginable to those mainly tuned to the present. With this backward-looking mentality, uh, let's put this place. What this backward-looking mentality knew was invaluable to the faith community, but its value was canceled by an accompanying dull, dullness to the poignancy of genuine new needs, hurts, and dreams. That sentence is important. The mentality was invaluable, but its value was canceled by an accompanying dullness of genuine new hurts and needs. And that's kind of where the Pharisees found themselves. This mentality felt the sanctions imbibed in childhood and adolescence as ultimate in form as well as content. It regarded its own stubbornness as faithfulness and courage. Sin was defined as change. Change is sin. Done. That's where that's, does that not describe the Pharisees that we were talking about this morning? The second mentality was extreme as well. Characterized by a lack of sensitivity to the role of the church, excuse me, the role of memory in the church. And it was tempted to ascribe positive value to things simply because they were not traditional. Okay? Just pegged out the other way. It had an inadequate sense of the seriousness of the risks it took with the right fellowship or of the irony of its tendency while thinking it was leading its way out of tradition to replace, now listen to this, to replace its own heritage with attitudes borrowed from other traditions, whether evangelical or liberal. It was not significantly imaginative in its understanding of its own heritage. For this mentality, the experience of peoplehood, memory, continuity, and cross-generational covenant did not seem as compelling or sacred. They were often viewed as obstacles rather than a means of grace. To drop the council meeting, and you don't have the context, but they dropped council meeting, and the writer says to drop council meeting was thus felt as a kind of progress rather than a loss of something essential to the right fellowship. I just thought that that summed it up quite well. Maybe you disagree with me, and I would like to hear if you do. But finding that proper balance, I just read that, to tell you that finding that proper balance is not easy. It's not easy. Never was, never will be. But we have to try. We have to try. I'm running out of time here in a big way, so I'm going to wrap this up. I know you're just sitting here thinking, what's that preacher going to say next? He's going to give his, he's going to give us some idea of how to do this. And folks, I stand before you, and this is where I don't know what to tell you at this point, but I'm going to give you a few feeble ideas. And you can do with them what you want. And by all means, by all means, if my ideas are wrong, would you please tell me? I don't want to go, I don't want to swing that pendulum either way. Okay, I want to be dead on. First of all, don't think that chucking tradition 
is going to get you any, anywhere. But also realize, as I said before, that tradition is not, does not box God's kingdom. It doesn't do that. God can work with and in spite of tradition. Be willing to admit that your Talmud is not the Torah. It's not. Be willing to admit that our rules and discipline is not the Bible. It's not. Let's be willing to admit that that thing can and possibly should be occasionally reviewed and changed. There's one thing that I'm concerned about is I think the term conservative Mennonite is a misnomer. Conservative was borrowed from a political terminology, and that means stay the course no matter what. Never change anything. No. If by changing I can come closer to the Bible, I must change. I must change. Keep your Talmud as concise and timeless as possible. That's hard. That's hard. Things change. I just got done saying things change, right? But try. Try to make it make sense. Try to be forward-looking people. Evaluate. Is our Talmud hindering just judgment mercy, and faith. And that's hard to make that call sometimes, but folks, G Jesus is so clear that if you ignore the weightier matters of the law, we are in deep, deep trouble. As a matter of fact, our sins remain. We can't go there. It's not worth it. I'd like to just stress this next point. Somehow, Personally, each one of you here today has to cultivate a spiritual depth and perception that we are self, I'm going to use the word governing, that's not the word I really want, but that we are self, um, we know how to examine ourselves. We know how to look at an issue and open up the word of God and say, you know what, that thing doesn't line up with the Word of God rather than running and pulling out the rules and discipline and say, oh, I guess we don't speak to that, so good deal, good to go. That's why you'll see in there, and such like. We can't possibly name everything. We're not even going to try. Are we spiritually perceptive enough that we can identify worldliness? We can identify immodesty. We can identify pride. And I'm talking about in my life, this one right here. The Bible is clear. There are worldly ways and concepts and practices. And we can't possibly make enough guidelines to cover for that. Well, folks, I've got to bring this to a close. <clears throat> Let me assure you this morning that Phariseeism and blindness does not have to be. There are people that were blind... In Jesus' day, there's people that saw in Jesus' day. Jesus was clear. And it, this, is, this is repeated numbers of times in the Old and New Testament that we tend to get sidelined. But if we love mercy and walk humbly and do justly, and we love mercy and we do judgment in faith, as Jesus says, and we know that there is an unfeigned faith and we know that there is pure religion, and that is our goal. That will go such a long way. We don't serve a God with a club. We don't, we don't serve a God that sits there and says, boy, I'm going to watch and see 
uh, you know, is he, is he got that just exactly right? I think there's some latitude. But I also believe that God expects us to grow enough in our Christian walk that we can say, you know what? That music isn't for the child of God. That piece of cloth isn't for the child of God. That way of doing things, that entertainment, that's not for the child of God. I mean, if, if we could just, it's, it just should be our goal to reach that. It just really should be. Also, let's recognize our proneness to eye disease. Let's just realize that we're very prone to that. We need healing. And may we never, ever be blind, my friends, because we're unwilling to look. Let's kneel for prayer. Our Father, we come to you this morning, and we recognize that um, we are in and of ourselves most blind. Lord, we recognize that we need your help. We know that in and of ourselves, we're going to make bad choices. Lord, I just pray that you would be with each one of us as we grow in grace and in your knowledge. Lord, as we attempt, with your help, to recognize worldliness in our own lives and to curb that, to serve you wholeheartedly. Lord, I pray that if there's any semblance of Phariseeism among us this morning, that you would just cleanse our hearts of that. Lord, help us to lay aside wrong ideas and embrace right ones, and to, by your grace, show the world the right way. God, I just pray you'd be with everybody that is not here this morning, that's one of our number, or just suit them a blessing. Help us to be shining lights for you in this dark and sinful world. I ask this in your name.